right. We are live. Hello, everyone. Good day, everybody. Hello. Hi. How goes it? Welcome to another and yet extra special episode of Merged Worlds. And uh, for those of you in the Americas, happy Thanksgiving. It is Thanksgiving uh, 2021 at the time of this storytelling. Um, in fact, I just stumbled into the door three minutes ago from picking up my wife and my mother-in-law over at her aunt's place. Um, feeling a bit under the weather this week, and I didn't want to get anybody over there sick, so I took them, dropped them off, and just went back to pick them up again. About a one-hour drive total there and back each time. But... Uh, Miss Ashley White says, hey, Draven, we made it. Happy Thanksgiving. And a happy Thanksgiving to you as well. I hope all of you got stuffed in all the best, with all the best foods. Um, I will get my Thanksgiving dinner after the stream, because my family brought home some for me. But I couldn't eat it while driving. I thought about it. I decided, hey, Buffy. So, um, today's episode, not real sure on the length of this one. Could be done early, could run long. It's very hard sometimes uh, when I'm preparing this story because I could look at this and say, wow, I wrote 15 pages. That's twice as much as last episode. But then like nine episodes of it are, com are actual things I read and it takes five minutes to read those. So <laughs> in either case, this will be the last episode of the current storyline, uh, the Rao Elf uh storyline that's happening up in the city of Star's Reach. And then two weeks from now, we will be, begin be beginning what is, in my opinion, uh, everything I've been working towards for 30 years. So the uh, meat of the next generation kicks in in two weeks from now in what will be episode 71 of All Frickin' Numbers. Like, all this to get to 71. 150 hours of story. Very exciting. And a little daunting. Um, but thank you once again, especially for those of you who managed to come by today on what is, for many, a holiday. I appreciate you taking some time away uh, from those other folks. And I am thankful for you. Um, we'll begin with just, of course, a short, minor recap of where the story is up until this point. <coughs> okay, Buff. I'm sorry. Scared my kitty. Um, but, um, while I'm doing that, hey, thanks for coming by. If you have a good time today, please remember to hit the like button. And if you're new here, be sure to subscribe to the channel uh, so you can hear more exciting adventures in the world of Merged World. So as many of you may remember, our heroes traveled north, uh, northwest specifically, um, to a city of uh, known as Star's Reach. This is a city that was besieged. Uh, a large, large force of drow had moved into the area. Drow being an evil race, notoriously evil race of elves. And they had started attacking farmsteads and waylaying caravans and everything. The Star's Reach being a city, a trade city for multiple kingdoms, relied on that business. Wow. So it sent out word that they were paying well for anyone who could help with the drow issue. Our characters have some history with Drow, one in particular being hunted for by Miss Dandy. So they decide to go north to try and help out, slightly undercover. 
uh, not letting off quite exactly who they were. En route, they went through a, an area uh, that was uh, clearly once a very fertile farming community area. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, long, long ago, but no one had lived there in a long time. And inside of a tower, they found a young woman named Fia, who was uh, under a spell of sleep. Uh, they managed to wake her, and they had to fight this big metal golem thing that had basically wiped out people and kept anyone from living there for hundreds of years at that point. They continued on to Star's Reach, um, where they began to investigate this issue. They took the job to try to get the drow uh, out of the area. Hello, Teresa. Happy Thanksgiving to you as well. Um, they took on this job, said, yes, we accept this. Um, and then through their own adventure and uh, such, they learned that the drow themselves were actually not the villains here. And they were a group, good group of drow that were trying to escape the evil city in the Underdark that they were from. Uh, and they were led by a drow named uh, Aaron, who actually had been the one to trick them into coming up there to begin with. Because he had had an experience with them many, many years ago in their very first adventure. And in fact, had given them a magical item uh, that, to this day, Mercy still uses every single day. Teaming up with Aaron, uh, they uh, managed to find out the true villains of this uh, situation. They went to the camp of all of the fake drow that were blaming the drow. It was supposed to be a group of primarily humans and half-elves. And supposedly one giant. They had one giant left. Our heroes had killed several of them. <laughs> different fights they'd done. Um, and then they were it was a race against time, because by the time they got there, while they caught the prime villain there of that section, uh, everyone, all the bad guys, had left to get this big caravan. This caravan was the important one. If it got waylaid, stopped, or destroyed, then it could ruin everything for Star's Reach, and all the kingdoms that had trust in them would no longer deal there. Which was the reason behind the whole thing. There was a one of the merchant lords of Star's Reach was trying to cut out everyone else and cause war between some of the other kingdoms to profit from. So our heroes raced, racing down the highway, trying to get to the caravan. When they came across uh, an advanced group from the caravan, a group of warriors who were kind of ahead, checking the road out, making sure everything was okay, but they were a good like day ahead of the caravan. At this point, our heroes, donning their regular gear, uh, made themselves known to who they really were. These people had heard of Serenity. It was a known and was known to be a positive place. Uh, and the fact that, again, Artemis, an elven high cleric of healing, the god Tavian, was there is, again, always their golden ticket. I use that phrase like once an episode. But she always is. So they're like, well, we can, we, we believe you. Okay, we got to get back to the caravan, but it's like a day and a half away. We might get back there too heroes and uh, their new small group of allies, including the general that was kind of overseeing the caravan, began racing back to the caravan, hoping that they made it there before it was too late. So that is where we left off last episode. And to continue from there, to take a sip. I've had an interesting day, so if I stop for a second, forgive me. <clears throat> I was eating some chips real quick before I started. 
choked on one a little bit, and I still feel like there's a piece of chip in there. So if I stop and cough, I apologize. I'll try not I'll try to mute the mic. Also, on the way to take my family to their Thanksgiving, as we were walking out my front door, I tripped and fell down the stairs, landing face first into my yard. Fortunately, landing into the grass, but I did twist my knee a little bit. So, you know, I'm fat and uncomfortable. That's okay. We're going to get some story going. Um, I have a lot written. And we're going to begin with the reading section, right? I, uh, I managed to get a lot prepped for today. I wanted the last episode of this to be a, a real good one. Uh, so I do have several segments of reading that I will actually do to everyone, or for everyone, to you, whatever. So, you know, here comes that. We'll begin. The caravan slowly made its way down the dark highway towards the city of Star's Reach. It was very dark and late into the night, much later than the caravan would normally be traveling. The caravan had been traveling later and then resting longer into the day. The fear of being ambushed drove the change, plus everyone knew the drow only attacked at night. That would make sense. We're staying awake during the night. We don't want them to come across us while we're all sleeping, so we stay awake, we're traveling, and we can sleep later into the day when we know the drow aren't going to be attacking us in the sunlight. The caravan was quite large and also had more guards traveling with it than normally. Though if one were to do a quick head count, they'd quickly see that there were still too few for a party this size. The caravan consisted of 12 large wagons, covered to hide the goods they carried from any prying eyes. In the very center was a covered wagon made of metal. Small barred windows and arrow slits allowed the archers inside to defend their valuable cargo, whatever it may be. The caravan master, a large man named Jodas, Jonas, J-O-N-A-S, <laughs> rode in the first wagon, its reins tightly held in his hands. He didn't like this. Not one bit. He did his best to hide his nervousness, but his eyes continued to look from side to side, searching the darkness of the trees for any signs of treachery. And every few seconds, his eyes stopped at the figure of the young boy walking out front of the caravan a short ways holding his little lantern, searching the road for any type of traps or holes or any other obstructions that might be a sign of an ambush. He was far too young to be out there by himself, but Jonas hadn't been given any choice. This caravan had to keep moving, no matter what. Everyone in the caravan was on edge, nervous and fearful. Every step closer to Star's reach increased the likelihood of attack. So you can imagine that. You, you're a huge caravan. All caravans are getting attacked at some point, pretty much. You know you're going to be a target. You brought some extra people, but you still don't know if that's enough. You're making all these extra precautions, but every step closer just increases the likelihood of any time of that attack, right? If you first come into the lands, you're coming down the road. That could be any minute. Okay, now it could really be any minute. Man, we're getting close. It's got to be any second, because they're going to do it eventually. You could just imagine that tension building on each person in that caravan. Um, and you didn't see a lot of people like uh, in this caravan. It's all like wagon masters. It's people that are here to protect this caravan. So you don't see a lot of craftsmen or passengers that might normally come along with a caravan of this type, you know, to sell their wares at the city or, or escort their goods. Um, that type of thing had gotten less and less common as it became more and more dangerous 
you just paid much more armored and uh, capable fighting people to protect your goods and hope it got there. Um, so again, you don't see a lot of no women and children, you know, innocents hanging out. I mean, some of the warriors and such were men and women, whatever. But I mean, you don't have like the innocent sitting in a wagon. It's just warriors protecting this thing. Suddenly, about that time, Jonas saw a tiny glint in the trees. Moonlight had reflected off of something small and metal for barely a second. But that had been enough. Several things all begin to happen at once. Jonas pulled hard on the reins, stopping the horses and his wagon. He cried out in warning, alerting the other wagons and their guards as well, as well as the lad up front, you know, warning everybody. At the same time, he began his cries. Uh, at the same time, cries and screams came from the forest on both sides of the road, followed by the familiar twangs of bowstrings and crossbows. The wagon drivers did their best to take cover, hopping down to hide under the wagons for protection. The guards moved to protect themselves and, their, uh, and the wagons they're protecting. So immediately, dude sees something, he cries out, pulls on his reins, everybody else, of course, pulling on the reins, and then arrows start coming in. So you can imagine a few people are going to get hit with arrows right out of the gate, right? Somebody was lined up with an arrow or a crossbow, few people got hit, you know? So immediately some people are going to fall, um, as well as potentially some of the horses or animals that are pulling them. Uh, you're trying to waylay this thing completely, and these guys aren't even really just rogues. They're here to cause damage. You can imagine they would want to eliminate any threat of escape. Um, the fake drow in the woods. Now, the big thing I'd like to point out here before I even keep going, this is a very primarily human group. It's a human kingdom. Pretty much everybody in this group is human. That gives them a negative right out of the gate, right? Because if they're fighting real drow, drow have excellent night vision. If they're fighting fake drow, well, half of them are human, which they're on relatively even setting there, but the other people are better hidden, and a whole bunch of half-elves who also have dark vision. So a lot of these archers and such can see real well this caravan with its few lights booking down the road. I mean, they're just ready to get picked off. So you can imagine a lot of them are armored and such. Even the caravan masters are probably wearing some type of protection. You know, they might be wearing everything, but they've got some like chest plates on or something, maybe something on their shoulders, maybe some type of hard helmet on, but maybe not like a huge face covering. But to try to give some type of protection. Again, they're, they're hired for that reason as well. Uh, and then, of course, this I want to stress that these cries and screams come from both sides of the road. So the ambush is on both sides. Now, very often I've stressed that a lot of the attacks came from the north side of the road. This is the big one, right? This is everything. Everything comes down to this for both sides. They're gonna. They're not wasting any time. Uh, continue. Jonas though sat frozen in his chair, staring at the young boy on the road trying to scream out as the arrows from the trees targeted the small figure. Suddenly, the figure spun unnaturally fast, twisting their body in almost inhuman ways. 
As the arrows flew past, the figure moved, turned, and dodged with uncanny dexterity. As the final edge final arrow sped towards them, the figure spun one last time. As the small hand grabbed the arrow right out of the air, her hood fell back, allowing her long topknot to fall loose and over her shoulders. And then she screamed. A terrifying, screeching, hideous, animalistic sound. Jonas was amazed and confused. What the hell was that sound supposed to be? Some kind of giant bird? Well, that's a callback for some of you guys who've been here. For that's the Wagaga Gaga scream. I had to fit it in again. There was a roar as the tarp on Jonas's wagon was thrown back, and the huge torn figure rose from it. The other wagons too opened to reveal more soldiers, warriors, and their new allies. From inside the large metal wagon, a ball of fire streaked out and into the forest on Jonas's right. Several screams were heard from the burning trees. Mercy jumped from the back of the wagon where she'd been hiding with Percy, Artemis, and several of the general's men. Even with the surprise defenses, the ambushers continued to push their attack. This was the night all their plans depended on, and they had no plans to give up easily. She saw Darsh and several warriors making their way towards the trees, even as some of the fake drow left the forest on a direct attack. With a smile, she began to make her way towards them, confident Percy would protect Artemis, who had already begun assisting the injured. So they'd obviously made it in time. They made it to the caravan, warned them, and so, you know, wherever the goods are, these guys carried on, obviously, to get attention. Hiding in the back, little Dandy was out front, doing her best to make sure there was no pitfalls on the road. Because that's also a very common type of tactic. Putting something on the road or even small holes that the horses might trip on, break a leg, and then bring everything to a standstill. So, they managed to get there in time, but convinced them the best route would be to draw them out. And that's exactly what they did. Soon as the now arrows and crossbow bolts are still being shot towards the caravan. Now, the caravan themselves, guards have taken up protection. They have people who are shooting bows and crossbows, primarily crossbows, back at the trees at any place that, you know, they can try to find somebody. You can imagine it's going to be a bit harder for them to find someone, although the several burning trees from Fia's fireball, because she's hitting, hiding inside the metal wagon with the uh, archers, uh, definitely helped brighten up the area which is now a pro for the humans and a con for the half-elves who suddenly's night vision just got negated. Right? Because going from dark to night vision, that takes a minute. Your eyes don't just adjust instantaneously. So um, I like to liken it to, imagine if you had infrared goggles on and somebody turned the lights on in the room. You're going to be blinded for a minute. So that kind of buys them a couple minutes, which is when Darsh and several of the warriors are now charging into the woods to try to take them on melee, right? Mercy, having the perk of her circlet that Aaron had given her years ago, can see better than anybody else in the entire area. To her, it's daytime. So she sees movement in the trees. She can be literally be directing. And there's several warriors that are charging with her. She's not solo, but she's going in as well. And she can, like, there's one up there. There's one in that tree. She can actually call out those things because she can see better than even anybody with dark vision who, at this point, Darsh and Artemis, their dark vision is also going to be messed with because of the amount of light. So Mercy, to her, no matter how bright or how dark it is, it's always the same brightness. None of that stuff affects her. 
Now, would a blinding spell or a bright light thing being thrown at her affect her? It's never happened. Something I've been thinking about. I haven't made a decision yet. Just making you aware. Um, so she goes charging in to help. The fact that she does so without thinking twice and knowing Percy's got Artemis shows a lot of faith in Percy, right? Because you'll know that over the many years, Mercy always is the one to protect Artemis if she can help it. She stays with Artemis if she can. She's in the front row of the fight very often, but she'll be the first one to fall back to protect Artemis. Percy is skilled. He knows what he's doing. That's why he's there. And Artemis, well, I'm sure the warriors out in the fight can use some help. She doesn't need to be a target, and she very easily would be. So having her back in the wagons, healing what few people she can to get them back out there and help them fighting, the best resource that they can use her for at that time. That says a lot about Mercy's faith in Percy's capability. At the same time this happens, Dandy, after that she dodges her little Matrix-style dodging of the arrows, shoots off into the trees as well. Because Mercy, or not Mercy, Dandy, Dandy shoots off into the trees, because Dandy's looking for something very specific. We'll talk about what that is in a minute. Mercy and Darsh are going in. It seems the majority of the melee attackers are still coming from the north. There's archers in the south, but it appears that the larger of the two forces is coming from the north. So that's where Darsh is going. Mercy sees him, says, hell yeah, let's go, and runs in. And now they're going in and, and trying to take that on while a group of warriors are still protecting the caravans as best they can. Dandy's gone and into the woods completely. <clears throat> Darsh is immediately set upon, not by one or two, but five or ten. Immediately, Darsh is viewed as the biggest threat there. And in many ways, 99% of the time, he really is. And so, that guy's scary. Some of these guys have dealt with this before, right? They've seen these guys in fight before. They know they've already taken out several giants. These guys, this is a bad guy. We've got to get rid of this Minotaur. So a bunch of the melee are going to come on Darsh at once. Now, fortunately, he's not alone. He has several well-trained uh, army members of the, the kingdom from the east. So he has some people on his back, but still, it's a pile on Darsh. And so Darsh is just cleaving his way through. And he's sword and shield in this one. He's got a sword and shield. He's just cutting and cleaving his way through the best he can, hoping these other guys can keep his back clear while he's trying to cut his way into the woods. Because as soon as they can get into the woods, they have less to worry about from the archers. Hard to shoot somebody in a tree to someone who's behind trees. But out on the road, they're more open. So... Darsh and friends, basically, their goal is to get into the trees to negate a large amount of the ranged attacks. So, let me get back real quick. Right. So as they begin to pile on Darsh, uh, they horribly uh, <laughs> miscalculate his capabilities. And literally, he just starts cleaving through people. And that's one of the good handy things about Darsh. He's physically strong enough that if he has a strong enough blade, he can cut a man in half. A regular dude. Now, obviously, not somebody wearing plate mail. But these people are dressed up to look like drow. So the best they've got is dark leather armor on. They really hadn't planned on a whole lot of melee combat. That's not been their MO this whole time. So when Darsh gets in there, he'll just, from head to shoulder cut straight in the middle, cut an arm off. Darsh does not care. 
He has a very, very strong magical sword, and Darsh does not slow down when he gets ahead of steam. But he doesn't use his boots! Because he doesn't want to outpace the guards that he's fighting with. He is fighting as a unit. That's important. Darsh is fighting with this group of people. Um, who... They've never fought together before, so Darsh is having to be extra careful not to leave him behind or leave them in a spot where they can. Always a hard part when you're fighting with someone you've never fought with before. Uh, Mercy as well hits the line of melee, although there's less for her, um, and starts her and the few guards with her, or warriors with her, start pounding their way in. They actually make it into the trees easier because less were thrown at them. As usual, like, oh, lady with the bonk stick. She's not that bad. Let's go get that guy over there. Lady with the bonk stick is just damn near as bad as he is. So it's nothing for her to just come through, crack a skull in half, and keep going without missing a step. And that's damn straight what happens. Mercy's walking through, just flocking people out of the way. And the people, you can imagine, who are with Darsh and Mercy are like, oh, God. Oh, wow. These guys are doing a lot of damage. Glad they're on this side, you know, like you, like I'm a trained warrior. I'm ready. I would plan for this. I knew we were going to be attacked in. Oh my God, he cut a man in half. Okay, I'm going to stay close to that guy. That guy's got some skills. And, and Mercy Group, same thing. It's like, you know, funk, keep on going. And you can imagine Mercy. Mercy has got this fighting style down now that nowhere near as intense, mind you. But in my mind, kind of has a little bit of a Captain America fighting style. And bear with me a moment when I explain this. Mercy's the type of person to hit someone with her morning star and then spin and toss it, hitting someone else. And as she's spinning to hit someone else, it reappears in her hand again. So there's her, her throwing or tossing or even using it as just a diversion, like morning star. People are like, what? And then suddenly it's in her hand and she smacks him in the face. It's very easy for her over these years to build that into her fighting style. So using her weapon in unusual ways, because it'll always pop back into her hand as soon as she wants it to, she really comes up with some interesting ways of doing damage. Um, and that happened well early with the characters who were playing this. Like, Can I do this? I'm like, yeah, let's see. Roll, you know. So she's gotten better and better with that. It's nothing for her to see a threat and then just whip the Morningstar in that direction, knock them clear off their feet. The other guy runs in on the unarmed lady, and then suddenly she's got a Morningstar. So there's a lot of that weapon-throwing, blocking, tossing kind of thing. I always kind of imagined that. Not so much of the Thor style, which some people would probably compare it to a little bit more. Because it's not an intelligent weapon. It's not zipping around like he wants and flying back and hitting five people on the way. It's still just a regular weapon she's tossing. And then it reappears. So it's not arcing in weird ways all over the, the air kind of thing. But I always put a little bit more to uh, Captain America style. Because it's a straight throw. But instead of bouncing back, it just reappears. That's my thoughts on the style. So I, if I could watch the two, one of the two of them fight, I'd probably pick Mercy. Like, Darsh would be awesome to fight, just cleaving through and stuff. But to see that type of combat, no one else in the world could probably reproduce but her. You know, no one else has this kind of combat. Uh, I think it would be interesting to see the different ways she's learned to attack and defend with that capability. Um... I did get a very interesting question this week about Mercy's Morningstar. I'm glad I just remembered it because I need to address it. It's never something I've brought up. Mercy's Morningstar always reappears in the hand that has the ring on it. I'm assuming everybody knew that. I've always assumed it, but I've never really said it specifically. 
The ring doesn't let her teleport from hand to hand. It always comes to the ring or to the hand that the ring is on because there's a matching ring on her finger and the other ring is on the morning star itself. So it's not like this hand's busy or this hand gets knocked out and her hand gets cut off so it appears in it. It's not like that. It has to be the hand that has the ring on it. Um, I wanted to address that because it was a question that I got. It was a very good question I've never had to address before. But yes, it's always been assumed her morning star will only come back to her primary hand. She is not ambidextrous. She does not fight as well with her left hand as she does her right. So, she's in there bonking. Darcy's in there chopping. Dandy's streaking through the woods. And as she comes across people, she'll, she'll cut somebody. You can imagine Dandy going through the woods. There's some archer and she's just behind him and cuts him in the back of the leg, stabbing the side of this guy. But she's not stopping to finish anybody off. She's specifically looking for something in the woods. And so she's moving quickly from place to place, from person to person. She can get a stab or a poke or something in, knock someone over, trip them. Great, you know. But she's not throwing any daggers. She's not losing any of her ammo. And she's not stopping. Um, and she's not hesitating. And that's the other thing. If she finds someone in the woods who's got a bow pointed, that's it. I'm not asking questions. You're down. Now, you remember that Aaron left, right? Aaron is not with them currently. So he's not part of this fight. Back at the wagons, right? There's a, a group of warriors have now come bursting out of the other side. Now, the warriors of the caravan have been more looking at the north because that's where the majority is coming. Still, some on the south side protecting the caravan from with shields and such from arrows, but there hasn't really been a melee threat. But then a small group comes running outwards. And it is clear instantaneously they are coming at Percy and Artemis. You can imagine, Artemis is going to be a target. As much as it's handy to have her around, she does attract the bad stuff. Always kill the squishies first. Starting with healer, then with me. Um, so they start coming. Uh, there's a couple of people there that step in to help as well, but it's primarily falls to a lot of Percy. He's against three or four guys with another warrior helping him out as well. Um, Percy, at this moment of time, a uh, little irritated with himself. You know, he's a little embarrassed at how easily he was taken down in the inn several days ago, right? Um, he always viewed himself a little bit wiser than that. And he's a, he's a, he's a young dude, he's, but he's, you know, he's not like a quick ninja dude. He's a warrior. He is a, a tank of some... That's his thing. He can take a hit. He's wearing... Full full plate at this point, uh, of serenity plate, which is better than normal plate. It is slightly magically enchanted when you get the temp, the high temp, the, the high ranked Templar's armor is better than regular armor, uh, specifically ordered from the dwarves of Corman, because um, that's where all that armor is made. Uh, but you know he's ready to do some damage, and here's an opportunity. And unlike the inn, in this situation, he's standing between danger and Artemis. You know, he falls in an inn because of his own foolishness, whatever. He'll deal with that. But keeping her safe is why he exists in his mind. That is why I'm alive. That was the task I've been given in life. Everything I've done in life has brought me to this moment. And this is how he feels in every moment whenever she's in. Has brought me to this moment that right now I'm to keep her safe. And I'll be damned if I'm going to let that slide. Uh, and he takes, you know, he's a very lighthearted, he's a friendly, he's a young guy, he's not a hardcore militant. Lucas was a little bit more militant by far than he was. 
Um, but he still takes his job very seriously. And the smile fades when the fight starts. Like, he's like, nope, this is how this works. And so as they come charging in, he just immediately starts cleaving into these people. And he's, again, exceptionally trained. And he's such a high rank at a very young age when it comes to Templars in general. Uh, he's over many Templars who are older and more experienced than he is because of his exceptional skills and his willing to, willingness to take a beating for the, for the right cause. You'll remember Percy was introduced when the temple was attacked by Oromon years ago. And when they found him, he was had a sword sticking through him, couldn't see through the own blood in his eyes, and he wouldn't let anybody pass because he didn't know the battle was over. Even in a daze, in shock, close to death, he would not fall over. And he was chosen to be the official bodyguard. Not so much bodyguard. He's the head of Artemis's personal security. So Sir Ian, who took over for Lucas, oversees Templars as a whole. The entire temple and the little temples that are in the other cities around Serenity. He's got big shoes. His Serenity has gone on. He's had to take on much more stuff than Lucas did. Lucas tried to do both. And Ian handled a lot of that for him anyways. But Percy, at that point, was like, listen, these are our best Templars. You are now second in command of the Templars, and you are in charge of her personal. Not just her, but the equivalent of their royal family. Her, Draven, and Seraph. You can imagine, he doesn't have to do much when it comes to Draven. Not a Templar there that's going to protect Draven better than Draven protects Draven. So he doesn't have to worry them there. But Seraph, even though Seraph's kind of a badass himself at this point, Still his job. That's why when he was real young, a lot of times it was Percy who was out with Seraph when he was traveling around the town or out hanging out with uh, Deacon and such when they were real young before these things started to escalate. Before the Serenity was attacked by the man in the hat. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <coughs> Throat. Sorry. <coughs> so that's his job. Protect the technically royal family of the temple. And the primary one being being Artemis, because as much as Artemis may get angry about it, if he had to choose between protecting Seraph or Artemis, he's going to protect her. I mean, Seraph, great kid, son of the... She's a high cleric. He's a Templar. That's what he does. He protects clerics um, and is trained to work with. So he's going to put Artemis' safety above everybody else in the world, including his own. So as they come in, they've found a slightly previously embarrassed and very upset Percy. And Percy just starts cutting into them as well. But they're not slouches. These people were hired for a reason. They're fake drow. And in this point, with everything going on, many of them aren't even trying to keep up the charade. Uh, the whole goal of this attack was to wipe out the caravan completely. A decisive no survivors kind of thing. Instead of let some escape to say it was the drow, it's to say you can't protect your own people or your people visiting you. So there's not a lot of pretending at this point, even though they still got their faces and skins painted up or they're wearing all black clothing and some of them still have the white wigs on to look like drow. Um, not as much. So Percy's in there fighting against them. Percy is doing well. The other guy that was with him starts well, but very quickly, unfortunately, takes a serious hit and falls. Uh, gets cut under the arm, stabbed under the chest, and falls to the ground. Is he alive? Percy doesn't know. But be Hey, Bragg. But behind him is Artemis, crouched next to a wagon, trying to heal somebody. 
It was one of the wagon people. They'd moved along healing the people that got shot. Artemis is trying to heal this fallen guy from the wagon. She's behind him, and he's trying to keep her safe while she does that. Hold the line. And now he's alone doing it against three people. Um, and he's doing well standing up to them. Not making a large amount of leeway in taking them down, because he's fighting three people. The fact that he's expertly not letting one of them get even an inch closer to Artemis is great. It shows to his skill. But it's still hard to get a hit in when you're trying to block against three people. The guy on his left, you imagine his left, middle, and right. The guy on his left makes a fatal mistake. Overextends himself trying to get Percy. Percy, in that instant, has a choice. I can take advantage of this. Very likely taking someone down. But to do that, he may have to overextend himself. Potentially taking a hit. And in a fight, that's what it is, right? It's like, I can take advantage of your mistake, but am I creating a mistake by doing that? Hello, Midnight. Oh, no worries, Bragg. Yeah, I know you guys have it. Be Thanks even for you guys. This is before Halloween. Yeah, I remember growing up. That's when ours was too. <laughs> um, so, he decides to take advantage of it. Much more armored than them. If he does take a hit, he should hopefully be okay. He extends in, yes, manages to store a good hit, guy falls to the ground. But at the same time, he takes a pretty deep cut. They did find a good chink in his armor, the term for like a weakness or a chain that is, uh, especially if you have like chain or plate, usually it's a space in between. You're finding that space or a weak link in the armor that you managed to cut through the chain mail. They find a little something under his arm as well, and he takes a deep cut, which, that's his sword arm. So now he's going a bit slower these two aren't armored like he is, so they're a little bit faster. So he's starting to get a little bit tired because his arm hurts. And he'd love to be like, hey, Artemis, you want to mind with the Band-Aid or something? But he's, she's behind him. He doesn't have time to be looking for Artemis. For all he knows, you know, she's hiding under the wagon, letting him protect her, right? So he's doing the best he can. And an opening happens again. And he takes advantage of it. He's like, okay, I'm going to risk this hit. If I can take another one down, 1v1, I can win. And he takes that. But this was a false one. The person was tricking him. The person manages to dodge his attack. Now, he quickly recovers to partially block the other one's attack on him, but the first one manages to once again get a good cut in the side of his abdomen. He can feel it slide between a rib. It's pretty deep. That's not easy to do. It's a stab up under the blades because with plate mail, you got to come up under the plates. You can't just go straight on. It's a flat thing. It has to come up under it. Person with a dagger and not a sword. Instead of letting, instead of letting the person pull the dagger out, he's got a shield. He drops his shield and he wraps his arm around that other guy's arm and kind of pulls him forward. Pulls the dagger in a bit more. But it, what it also does is allow Percy to put his forehead into the forehead of somebody wearing a wig. And I guarantee you, a plate mail helm is harder than a white wig. And he pulls his head, this person in and shoves his head down so hard he can hear the skull crack when he hits this guy in the forehead. And that guy falls down. That moment, still another guy there. And that guy pulls his sword back 
and prepares to bring it right down on Percy. Not a lot Percy's going to be able to do. He's trying to dodge it, but he knows he's not going to make it. And then, something flashes past his face. Not permanently, but something, if you could say, whips. So you got to remember that Artemis, while she primarily uses her quarterstaff, is also uses a whip. It rarely comes up, because she doesn't find a lot of opportunity to. But as that person's arm comes up to come down, suddenly a whip snaps around it and stops him. And the rogue's like, what? And Artemis is standing there, her staff's on the ground. She's sitting there holding the whip. The guy's pinned back up. And the guy looks over at Artemis, and that's all Percy needs. Suddenly, that guy's arm from the elbow down is not there anymore. Percy manages to get his... Lops that arm right off. So, in that moment, the guy screams. The other guy's fallen to the ground. Percy manages to then, after cutting the arm around, brings it around and cuts the guy down completely. Because your arm just got cut off. You're occupied. Your first thought is not, hmm, what should I do next? It's, oh my god, my arm's gone. And as the final guy falls, he turns to thank Artemis. Now, of course, she's going to heal him at this point. He's obviously got blood pouring out of a couple spots. But he can't help but smirk a little bit. Because the look on her face right now is just disgust. And she's holding her whip. And there's just an arm tangled up in it. And she's trying to wiggle it to get the arm. Because she's good with a whip, but it's stuck. And she's trying to wiggle the whip without touching the arm. And there's just an arm flopping around in her whip. And he just, he can't help but give a chuckle. And he reaches out and grabs it and untangles the arm and tosses it to the side. She's like, thank you. Oh, Lord, you're hurt. And then steps in and begins healing him. But for just that moment, you can picture like, ah, ah, get it's stuck in the whip. I just thought that'd be funny. Or struggling with this arm wrapped up in a whip. Now, occasionally, little bolts of magic are shooting out of the wagons. Sometimes one side, one side that. Remember again, you can picture it's a big metal square wagon. There's one door, but it's bolted from the inside. It's got the little arrow slits and a couple little barred windows where people inside can shoot from protection. Right? If the everybody outside. You know, loses, they're stuck in that box. They're going to have a bad day. But, you know, at this point, Fia's in there. When she can see somebody, she's firing off magic missiles. Because remember, magic missiles never miss. So as long as she can see a target, she's guaranteed to hit them. So when she sees people coming at Mercy, she's even helping with Percy's fight or Darsh, whenever the case may be. If she sees a guard who's in trouble, she's in there with magic missiles popping them. And never missing. It does enough damage to sometimes hurt or kill somebody. But even if it doesn't, it definitely helps the person that she's helping. Right? So Fia's inside like, I don't know, like a sniper. Just popping off people. Every time she sees someone, she's popping off a couple magic missiles that just zoop around everybody else and always hit their target. What a handy ability. I love magic missile. Probably my favorite spell after Glitter Dust. And after Grease. After Glitter Dust and Grease. Probably my favorite spell. And the main spell, most wizards take at first level. <laughs> so, this is going on. Darsh again is inside the trees. And he's encircled by fake drow. Um, at this point, he's got a couple crossbow bolts sticking out of him. Now, of those, only one's actually managed to hit flesh. Because he's wearing his armor as well. And he wears... He, sometimes... 
like he wears just like when he's just regular regular day he has just like the leather straps on he's mostly shirtless but in battle he has armor he'll put on his armor you know not stupid he's a good warrior but he has one sticking out of his uh, out of his arm that went in pretty deep some of them are just stuck in his clothing um but his shield again he's got a huge shield is blocking a large part of that so he's still cutting and cleaving through and at this point even though all this is going on and you can see these people dropping there are still more attackers than defenders, right? It's a large force that's come in in this situation. Now, it's about that time that two things happen. The first thing is another magic spell is cast. This one comes from within the trees. And another ball of flame, and this time goes flying towards Fia's wagon. Those inside do their best to brace against it. You can imagine there's still going to be some damage done. There are little windows and still arrow slits. But the fire bursts against it, damaging or hurting the person outside of it who was trying to help protect it. Probably the person who was driving it, as well as the horses pulling it. It's a big fireball, and several defenders are taken down by that fireball. It's only a matter of time. They knew there was a wizard in that group. Somebody fell, but somebody dropped something, I guess. <laughs> Upstairs, I hear a thump. I have to worry about these things. Um, the second thing that happens is several large trees topple over on the road ahead of the caravan. And then the giant steps out of the trees. We knew there was still one hill giant. And this hill giant isn't even as armored as well as the last one. The last one was really well armored. This one is not armored. Uh, probably even a little bit bigger. But this one has a small buckler on and a huge sword. Like a Darsh height sword. The loud trees falling, of course, catches everyone's attention attacker and defender, and there's just a quick lull, Darsh hears it and immediately knows what it is. And but running back out of the trees, from melee that he's in, starts making his way towards the giant. Several of the guards he's been fighting with, coming with him. I did a little bit of research before I started this fight here. Because... Um, I wanted to make sure I was accurately portraying Psy. So I took Darsh, who's a little over seven and a half feet tall, without horns, and I got the height of a hill giant, average, and realized that Darsh comes up to just about the belt of a hill giant. There are larger giants out there. Storm giants, frost giants, things of that nature. For a hill giant, Darsh comes up just about the belt or waist of a hill giant, which itself is relative because they usually got bulgy bellies that hang down a little bit. But, you know, he's about that height. So a little less than half the height, maybe, of this hill giant, which is bigger than I kind of imagined it. Uh, but I actually went down and was looking at some size charts and pulled that out because I wanted to be accurate in this. So as Darsh running in to this fight... When it comes to overall physical strength, Darsh is on par with a hill giant. Uh, 
Uh, now, granted, he has some magic items, and there's some things that have helped him get to this strong. Not always this strong when he character is first rolled, but at this point, with his experience and the skills and the stuff that he has, he has the same strength as about a hill giant. So he is charging in immediately. Not using his boots, mind you, but he is charging in, because this thing knocked over several big trees. Obviously, too big for even it to pick up. Just huge trees are knocked over, and it steps over them, and it's making its way towards the caravan. This also cuts off the caravan from fleeing, probably partially why the giant did it. And again, leaves a little bit of a barricade behind it. It's going to be harder for things to get behind him that way, right? So it climbs over this thing and is walking towards with this huge darsh. Because a sword can be as long as half a person uh, if, if you've got a good sword. And it's marching forward with this. And it sees darsh coming. And it does not look surprised. Understandable. Several of its allies have been killed by a minotaur and its friends. Not shocked to see a minotaur. Probably something they were looking for. The fact that Darsh and them were hidden in the wagons probably helped. But once they popped out, they're like, ah, okay, that's them again. We've got to deal with this. And as Darsh is running forward to meet this giant, he has a thought for the first time. And Darsh has fought many large things. He's fought dragons. He's fought other giants. He's fought stuff. But as this thing's walking towards him, not with the unintelligence of a hill giant going to club, but as just a really large warrior confidently walking towards him, Darsh in his head chuckles a little. Because for the first time, all he can think is, this is what it must feel like to be Fig. Right? A gnome taking on a human would be the same type of concept. Maybe even a little smaller. Every fight for Fig is like this. You know? And if they're fighting a giant, you can imagine what it would be like for Fig. But against an average human or even a minotaur, every fight for Fig is fighting a giant. Um, and that kind of changed a little bit about how I viewed these combats. Even from a DM. This is all happened this week. You know, Playing a very long time doesn't mean I can't learn something. Right? If a warrior, gnome, can step in and 1v1 a, 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 a decently skilled human warrior, maybe even minotaur warrior, something along those lines, then I need to treat a human and minotaur against a giant much in the same way. There's negatives, difficulties to overcome, um, but combat could very much be similar. Uh, and so that's how I'm going to take this, just to give you guys a little bit of upfront of how this, why this one may seem a little bit different from giant fights in the past, uh, because ever evolving, ever learning, I think this makes a bit more sense from a realism point. Darsh charges in. He's a, obviously long-legged and more powerful, so he's ahead of the humans. They're catching up. But as he comes in, this giant with a sword knows how to use it. Obviously not super fast, like, you know, a rapier or anything, but he still knows how to cut the sword. Takes it and obviously comes in an attack with Darsh. And Darsh comes up with his sword and he parries it. Now, that's not to say it doesn't jostle his arms to the point that he, his arm may go numb for a second. That's a lot of strength behind a really big sword. But his sword is a magical sword. I can guarantee you the giants is not. 
it is strong enough to take that blow. And Darsh is strong enough to take that parry, but not without an effect. It's still going to cause some damage from the overall shock of it. And if the guy rolled high enough, he could pop Darsh's shoulder right out of the socket with something like that. Fortunately, he didn't. But that could happen. Darsh manages to parry that blow, which you can imagine surprises the giant and everybody else watching, right? That'd be the same thing as a minotaur with a battle axe coming down and Fig blocks it with his hammer. He could do that. It'd be impressive to see. Probably going to hurt like hell tomorrow. And Darsh does that. He brings his sword up. And at this point, he's dropped his shield. Like, against this, he knows he's got to, he's got to do two-handed his sword. He's not going to be able to parry that with one hand, regardless of strength. It's just huge. It's going to take both of his hands and a very good posture to block that sword's momentum. And even still, he probably slides back a couple feet on the dirt. Right? Like, it hits him. If he's holding his good position, it's going to slide him back just from the force of the blow. Surprised and irritated, the hill giant draws back to attack again. Darsh does have the perk and the bonus. As a smaller person, he's going to move faster. And he manages to literally reach in and cut right across the top of his thigh, straight across one of his legs with the sword, before then getting his sword up to parry the second blow. So the giant moves slower. Size he has to. And so for every one attack of the giant, Darsh basically can get an attack and a block, or an attack and attack, or just dodge completely. He's going to have that extra speed in there, depending on exactly what the type of attack is. And so Darsh, the other ones are in there trying to help and attack, but Darsh is the primary uh, villain that this giant's like, nope, you're the one I got to deal with. You shouldn't have been able to do that. And so they're sword fighting. A hill giant and a minotaur are straight up sword fighting on the street. Or highway. Now, one of the other ones, guards that's with him, jumps in and manages to get a, a, another cut on the leg of, a, of the giant. Now, the giant's one hand in his sword. But with that buckler, he backhands that other guy who just stabbed him. That guy's hee-hee up into the trees. Like he's, he, he's, he's off the road at this point. And at that same time, several magic missile bolts come out of the trees, striking another one of Darsh, Darsh's uh, sidekicks at this point. There were four. So immediately, and he goes down. So two of Darsh's sidekicks have gone down. It's Darsh and two warriors. Mercy is struggling. Started off really well. Went in there, whooping booty. But after a couple of minutes of her cracking skulls, the attackers start to notice this, and they change their tactics a little bit. Now more of them are starting to come towards her, and she's having to be more careful as some ranged attacks are now being focused her way. So she's having to fight while also trying to hide behind trees as possible. Several of the guards that are with her are already down, and it's just her and three more at this point, and they're outnumbered. Even still, they were doing well. But then a particularly large half-elf shows up. Now this guy's dual-wielding swords. 
And he's pretty skilled. Not a boss. Just a skilled warrior. Everybody has them, right? Good guys aren't the only people with some skilled people. And this guy comes in, Humble said, showing no mercy. That's bad choice of words. Uh, not giving any quarter, like just hammering at her. And she finds herself, because she's still using a shield, she finds herself very much on the defensive very quickly. And she's struggling to try to get a blow in. The one downside of being someone who uses a morning star is it's a blunt weapon, it's a heavy weapon. It's not going to move as fast as a sword will, especially when there's two of them. He's blocking and parrying pretty well, but to do that and trying to get a hit in, not so much. So she's sitting there trying to fight this dude while her last remaining guys are also trying to help hold off all these other attackers that are coming in. There doesn't seem to be as many as there was before. Now, that troubles Mercy, because while she's doing all this military mind, she's like, I'm not seeing as many. Are they overrunning the caravan? Are they taking over Darsh? Are they fleeing? I don't know. And that's the not knowing is the hard part. When you're planning strategy, not knowing a factor can change everything. So she, in her mind, she's like, I've got to get this guy down or out of the way so I can find out what's going on. Do I need to step back and help defend? Do I need to go help Darsh or Dandy or Artemis? Or do we have them on the run and I need to start chasing down people? Because they really don't want people escaping either. They were, you know, they were quite clear with the general. It's like, listen, these people are coming to kill you. You know, if you can get a couple prisoners, sweet. But we don't need to let anybody get away. Dandy was quite, quite specific on that. He's like, do show no quarter. If you can capture some, great. It's going to be easier to point the finger at the prick back in the city who's running this whole show. We walk in there with some, we definitely would like to get a hold of a few people, but we don't want anyone to escape. Speaking of. The wizard is preparing another spell. Sitting there, and he sees that his fireball had some effect. He had to stop for a minute and help the giant out because the giant's fighting that big cow-looking guy, and holy hell, that guy's doing some some damage. Can't have that. That's my last. That's our last giant. But now that he's taken a few out, the giant seems to be doing pretty good. He's got to focus back on the other caster. There's another caster inside of that that box, and I can't see her. These magic missiles are useless for him. He's hiding inside, looking out little windows or things. It's dark in there. I can't see her. I can't target her with a magic missile. That is a requirement. You can't random shoot a magic missile. You have to have a target. Guaranteed to hit what you want, you have to want it to hit something. You can't just say I'm aiming for the hole. It has to have a target. That's the way we've always played magic missiles. You have to see the target specifically. It has to be a tangible target. You can shoot a fish. If you... um, <laughs> but I digress. So he's sitting there, and at this point, he's like, hmm, okay then. Let's see if we can get the wizard out of the metal box. The big, heavy metal box. And he begins casting lightning bolt. Because a large amount of electricity, big metal box, will either kill, cook, or definitely get them out of there. Because there's no getting them out. It seals from the inside only. No getting them out of there unless they want to come out. Or you take 
days to cut through the thing, right? He begins casting lightning bolt. Now, he has a guard on each side of him protecting him as well, of course. You know, he's the wizard of the party. He's the only one. And he's hiding back into some trees. He's, he's on a slight bit of elevation. He's hiding back there, and he can see the thing. And he sees another magic missile shoot out. And he's like, okay, I'm going for it. And he's casting the spell. And you know anything about spell casting? It's not like that. The bigger the spell, the couple seconds longer it takes. He's casting his spell, and he's about to release the spell. And immediately, instead of the next word of the spell, jumbles out a weird noise of pain. His arms oddly fall limp, and he starts to fall backwards. And as he does, he feels a hand come over his mouth as he falls back into someone else's arms. The blade that's pierced his spine, he can still feel it being twisted, and as he does, the pain is extraordinary. But he can't scream out, and he can't move. Someone has effectively severed his spinal column. Just right in there. And he just, is, you can tell, immediately he starts getting weaker as the blood begins just pouring out of his back. And all he hears is a soft, feminine voice saying, Shh, let it happen. Nothing you can do. He's laid on the ground, and as he's laying there, he can still look up, but he's mouth moving just a little bit. He tries to look to the side, and he sees his two protectors are lying on the ground as well, just out of his vision. And looking down at him is Dandy. And she says, For the lives you have taken, for the innocence you would have blamed for all of this, I'm not going to make this fast. And then turns around and walks back into the trees. And he just lays there, unable to move, in excruciating pain, because the knife is still in his back, laying on the ground with the blade in him, and he feels his lifeblood slowly leaking out of him. It's a painful, a very slow death. Darsh's sword flings into the air, but so does the giants. The two of them had doing that really classic up-against-each-other parried thing, and the giant had tried to pull Darsh's sword away. Darsh tried to pull his back, and in the middle of it, literally, they both stumbled a bit. The strength of... Because they're equally strength at this point. The giant's still strong, by all means. Darsh doesn't fight things quite as strong as him that often. Like, the only thing he can think of that was technically straight-up stronger, well, that would have been the emperor of Kronayar, his, his emperor, who, in the back of his mind, he's like... Man, I'd love to see him take on a giant. I've never seen him take on a giant. Man, I bet that'd be a good show. But in the struggle, the swords come loose and stumble onto the ground. At the same time, remember, Hill Giant's only using one hand. The other hand, the big meaty fist, just comes down and punches Darsh clean against the face. Lesser man would have fallen immediately. Darsh took the blow, staggers backwards, but immediately regains his composure. Giant tries to come in with another one, but Darsh 
Stepping in, Kidney punches him because he can reach his kidney. Darsh is hitting just as hard. Now, again, I considered this part of the combat. What would hurt more? A fist punching you in the side. Or someone taking a stick or a finger and hitting you just as hard in the side. Got the same strength. Darsh's hand is a lot smaller. It's intriguing to me. Because I would think that, in some ways, the giant's going to have the edge because he's doing much more damage spread out. Right? Break an arm, bend the armor, something of that nature. But I don't know, man. If you've ever been poked really hard between the ribs, that hurts. <laughs> so, you know, you can imagine the giant's like, ugh! And then they're straight up brawling at this point. Several more of the drow have come up and are fighting along, fighting the guys that were helping Darsh. But, um... It's pretty much Darsh against the giant at this point. Mercy barely dodges that, that last blow. And at this point, she feels like she's starting to get a bit winded. She can tell that there's not many people around her, her side or the other. It's mostly just her and this one. Whether they're watching or what, it's hard to tell. She's having to use every moment to keep this dude off her. He's so fast. But he also seems to be getting a bit more desperate. Like, you know, he's in a hurry. And so there's a couple times he probably could have got a good hit, but he missed that opportunity. Mercy can't do this all day. She doesn't have time for that. And so Mercy goes back to something, decides to take something uh, a little bit unorthodox. She uses, a, she uses a skill called Shielding. It's a second edition ability that, I'll be honest, we created. Not anything else. But it's a shield proficiency using your shield as a weapon. You can take Shielding as a skill, um, but it counts as a weapon slot. Second edition, you have a certain amount of weapons. you can. And you have to choose one of two ways to use Shielding. Darsh also has it, but he knows how to throw a shield. Again, it's not Captain America bouncing back to him, but he can throw a shield of equal dimensions accurately. Circle, if it's a square, if it's a triangle. If it's a rectangle, you can't do it. There's a chance you could throw it, but you're much, much less accurate. At least it has the same dimensions. You've got a shot of whipping the thing as a potential hit. You lose your shield. Um, and most shields are not sharp, so it's not usually going to kill someone unless you can hit them in the forehead or the throat or something. But it can be uh, an emergency maneuver. Mercy took the other one of shielding. Uh, and that is where instead you learn the shield bash maneuver. So with the shield bash, you open yourself up by dropping your primary weapon and literally thrust forward unexpectedly with the shield. Now, in many of those situations, it's it, you might get some damage out of it. It's not what it's really intended for. It's meant to push that person back. It's meant to back them up. Because if I'm fighting two swords and all of a sudden there's a shield at me, I might be able to block the shield or put my arms up so I don't take a lot of damage. But I'm also not attacking. And that's exactly what happens here. Drops her Morningstar and she grabs the back of her shield and literally just with her shoulder thrusts forward with the shield. Unexpected. Very, very unusual tactic. Would it really work? I don't know. I've never practiced it. But, you know, <laughs> she comes forward with it. 
The guy does as I did. He puts his arms up to block it. And he's pushed back a bit because Mercy's stronger than this guy. Mercy's a very strong lady. And he pushes away and the shield goes with it. A little odd. The only way that would happen is if she let go of the shield. But he pushes away with the shield. You can imagine that. He's pushing it to the side. The shield falls. His swords are in his hands. Mercy is standing there with a morning star in her hand again. Because for anyone else, that would be a bad problem. Her, back in her hand again. And on the angle she is dropping, she, she just starts to bring her hand up. And she catches him square under the corner of the chin with the morning star. And the, with enough strength behind it, that her, she hears that go pop and do just literally flips and lands on the ground. Like just, you hears the jaw pop. Saying his neck broke and hit that hard, but his jaw pops and it clearly takes him out. And the dude almost spins once in the air and lays on the ground. His swords go straight. Mercy takes a moment of breathing, looks around. Sure enough, the guys she were with are laying on the ground, but there's even more of the fake drow. But there doesn't seem to be anyone else around and no arrows are coming at her. She takes just a quick breather, reaches down, grabs her shield, and starts making her way back to the caravan. She's got to see what's going on there. Is she the last one standing? She doesn't know. Both Darsh and the Giant are wearing down. Both of them. Bruises and stuff. Now, the Giant's got the perk of he's not really being hit in the head. Darsh can't punch him in the face. He's too high. But he's got bruises all already showing up on his, where Darsh is just kidney punching and even a couple groin kicks because, you know, Darsh don't care. Uh, but Darsh has got one eye that's already swollen shut, the blood coming out of his nose, and they look like they're having a barroom brawl. Uh, to the point that everyone else is back out of the way because they're just dodging and punching at each other. And the giant starts to get the upper hand. Uh, because again, height does matter. Darsh can't hit him in anywhere but from his chest up. There's no throat, no face, can't box his ears. None of that stuff that normal fight you're going to be aiming for. Um, and so that's an issue. He's done a hell of a lot of damage to the knees though. Darsh Kicks like a mule. He really does have a strong kick. Uh, so definitely the giant's legs are a bit wobbly because, you know, he keeps getting kicked real hard in the leg. But it's just a straight-up brawl between these two beasts in the middle of this road. And Darsh is starting to slow down. That one eye swollen is... is and they, the other guy's getting a couple hits in. And he's still got that buckler on, which is not helping. Darsh keeps considering drawing another weapon. But... Foolishly, Darsh adheres to honorable combat. The tour in their honor. The other thing doesn't have a weapon. He's going to fight it hand to hand. It's foolish. But he's going to do it. So they're going back and forth. In a surprise maneuver, the giant bats Darsh's hands away and then wraps his hands around Darsh's neck. Just starts squeezing. This is a strong dude. Darsh immediately starts struggling. First thought, man, I wish I'd have pulled the weapon out. And now he can't. There's a command word to pull the weapon out of his magical bracelet. And he can't breathe, he can't talk. So he can't. And so he's swinging at the giant, trying to get a hit, and he can't. The giant's holding him out. 
Darsh brings his feet up and he hits Grant, hits hits skin a couple times, and the giant definitely is getting hit, but the giant's just squeezing harder. Darsh seems very sturdy. You're not gonna pop a neck with Darsh. He's got some armor around too. He's squeezing. Darsh is starting to feel weak. He's not sure what else to do at this point. Got the giant. And you can imagine this, right? Sitting there holding Darsh like this, with his arms a bit round out. You should just make hand signs and do a jutsu. <laughs> not sure what that is. I mean, like jujitsu. I got you. <laughs> but he's holding him. He's got his arms out and kind of, you know, wide because he's trying to get strength on Darsh while still keeping him out of range so he can't you know, punch him, right? And he starts beating at the hands and such. But it's you're not getting a lot of strength beating up on a meaty claw at that point. Darsh is the only thing he could think of. He wraps his arms up around the arm. It's a Naruto thing. I thought that's what you were going to say. I've seen one episode of that. I had, a, I had an old friend that was really into Naruto. Talked me into watching an episode one. So, uh, Darsh puts his arms around and uses that momentum to just pull his body. Um, like, imagine if... This is Darsh, right? That's his head. He's using his momentum to pull his body up in like a swing. And he does. He pulls his body up and feet and kicks upwards. Now the giant's holding him off the ground. He's holding him at shoulder height. Darsh is long. Darsh is definitely longer than that guy's his uh, uh, arms. And so, boom, those feet come up right underneath the giant's jaw. Head thwacked back the giant, wham! And he lets go of Darsh, and he falls backwards. At the same time, Darsh is in a laying position, and he falls flat onto his back. Both of these things just flunk at the same time. Darsh is getting up, struggling for air. The giant's getting up. Now the giant is slower to get up. Again, he's got that, and giants themselves... Not known for quick and dexterity. They're normally very girthy. There's not a lot of very athletic-looking giants when it comes to a hill giant. Some of the other giants, storm giants specifically, very different. Very Olympus-looking hero. But hill giants, always a bit more on the girthy fat side. And the giant is struggling to get up. Darsh manages to get up first, and even though he's still just getting his air back, and his eye stumbles forward, and as hard as he can... Punches the giant clean in the face. The first face hit he's been able to get. And when he does, the giant stumbles and falls back down. Can you imagine the giant was trying to get up on his hands and knees, right? So as Darsh comes down, he's hitting him right on the side of the head. Giant's facing down, trying... He's right between the ear and the side, just boxing him straight down. And the giant's like, and just hits the ground again. And as he tries to get up, Darsh just continues hitting him in the side of the head. The giant, still got life in him, flings out his arm. Doesn't hit Darsh, but Darsh does have to jump back to avoid it. The giant rolls on his side and starts to get back up again. Darsh can't give quarter in this situation. So, he does the only thing he could think of in this situation. As the giant is stumbling up, again, he's up on kind of on his hands and knees, um, Darsh kind of jumps behind him, runs behind him a little bit. 
He's giving the giant a moment to get up. The giant struggles up and he's almost to a full standing position and Darce charges the back of his legs. And he turns his boots on. He's not going to pull a weapon out. Kind of guy. But you don't have to. When on your head, you have horns. He has one and a half horns, but horn nonetheless. Darsh charges and barrels into the back of that giant's leg. Stabbing him right through the back of it. (laughs) That hurts. And the giant hits so hard that not only does he fling, does it hit him, he hits and rolls over on his back. Now, like a flipped over turtle, no. Not making a joke of turtle if he's in the audience or watches later. (laughs) But, lands on... Darsh, eyes still swollen. Right? When he, the horn rips out the side of the thing's leg. You can imagine how, how much that would hurt. Someone took a screwdriver and shoved it in the back of your leg, and then as you're falling, it rips out the side. <laughs> With his breath weapon. That would be funny. No, Darsh does something a little differently. He does roll, though. The giant's in anguish pain, his leg just burning. But suddenly, the giant feels himself being raised. It's a strain, and it takes all the strength that he has left. Darsh is a minotaur. He's a minotaur warrior. Uh, close, to, close to eight feet tall. One and a half horn. The end of one of them got busted off a little bit in an early adventure. He's a big minotaur. And so, minotaurs, perfectly huge. Darsh literally picks him up. And in a very, and I have to say it humorously, Bane-like movement, does not bring him down on his leg. He'd break his own leg. That would be insane. This thing weighs way more than Darsh does. That always confused me. I don't know about you, but if I had a person and I brought them down on my leg, that's going to hurt my leg. Never understood that move in movies. You know? That's going to hurt my leg. I don't care how sturdy and in shape I am. If I throw a person across it, it would be a problem. Darsh doesn't do that. Instead, he brings him down really hard on the large tree that the giant knocked over at the beginning of the fight. And as the giant, at least like, as the giant hits it, of course, that, much like a knee, but sturdier, pops. And you see the giant, oh, and he's just laying there again in anguish, pain, unable to move. Darsh, staggering like he's completely intoxicated, stumbles over and picks up his sword and wobbles his way back over to the giant, who, still alive, is bent over backwards trying to reach out at Darsh, and Darsh just pushes the hand away and just slink right underneath the chin. Right underneath the skull, which would go right up under the brain. Slink. He throws the sword down. He's like, damn it, that hurt. The giant's just laying bent over this tree. You can imagine how hard it's going to be for people to clear this road later. Just saying. 
do this in six seconds. Well, this was a little more than six seconds. You got to imagine. Uh, I'll tell you what. If I'm slightly out of shape and I've had the ass, my, my, my butt whooped and I get stabbed in the back of the leg and I fall over, um, it's, it's going to take me a minute to get back up. You know what I mean? As for the six-second rule, that's a fifth edition thing. Time works a little bit different uh, in second edition, but this was a series of attacks. This would have been a series of rounds. Strangling was one. Kicking him was an action, right? Then there was a couple rounds of punching the giant to knock him down again, right? Then there was the roll to pick him up and bring him down, walk over, get his sword, come back. The whole thing probably took a minute or so, right? It would have been very, very quick. And there's no one to intercede, because at this point, battle itself has gone mostly quiet. Darcy is standing there breathing, and he sees some in the corner of his eye, and he looks over, and it's the only surviving guard. Person, he's like, you all right, kind of thing? And Darcy's like, I'm good, I'm good. The guy picks up the sword, hands it back to Darcy. Darcy's looking at like, yeah, I don't know why I threw it on the ground either. It was it was a very strange moment, but he takes it and sheaths it. Because <laughs> that's the one he keeps in sheath. All of his other weapons he keeps in his bracelet. He has a magical charm bracelet. For each, he, has, uh, he has six different charms. Each charm will hold a weapon. Command word will let him pop out the weapon of his choice. Another command word will pop it back in. Um, but it has to be in his hand to pop it back in. He, it's on the ground. It just doesn't teleport. He has to go pick it up and then use an action to put it back in. Um, but this sword's the one sword he keeps on him at all times. So, this point, mostly things have gone quiet. Mo the, there's still plenty of guards up. Several are down and injured, although Artemis is seeing to those she can. The guards, several of them are around her now with shields in case any last-minute, last-range attacks come in. But the arrows and such have also gone silent over the last couple seconds as well. Artemis is doing her best to heal as many people. I just froze? Uh-oh. If I just froze, what, what was the last thing I said? I'd hate to miss something. Hmm. My end, I'm not seeing any negatives. Um... On my end, everything looks good. Is anybody else having a problem with the stream? The Gruber says it's fine on his end. Oh, yeah. On my end, I'm not showing any lost frames. I'm not getting any notices that anything's gone funky. Um, I'm good? Okay. Yeah, sorry, Teresa. It might be, on, might be on your side. I don't know about you. It's storming here on Thanksgiving. Of course, that's the way life works. So, there's relative silence, right? this point. Relative quiet. Well, Artemis is going around trying to heal those who need it the most who are close to death, right? With a contingent of people with shields wrapped around her, because she's just super important, right, at this point. They're not under direct attack. They can afford to do so. Mercy has already has come under the trees at this point, and uh, her and a few other people are, you know, going around there's, there's injured, of course, on the uh, attacker's side as well. Uh, and they're doing the duty, right? Some of them are pretty far gone. Not going to waste a healing spell on that. Finishing them off. Those who are injured or stunned or unconscious, well, those are prisoners. 
Go ahead and get them locked up as quickly as possible. While still trying to defend in case another wave comes in. Because the battle stopped very quickly out of the blue. And they don't know why. Right? Suddenly, a voice calls out from the forest. It's me, Dandy! Nobody shoot me! Dandy comes walking under the trees with her hands up a little bit. Or she's like, are you okay? Yes. Nobody shoot me. Like, we're not going to shoot you. Yeah, but I don't want you to shoot anybody else either. Okay. General, who's still, who survived, is like, okay, what's going on? He goes, I have prisoners. I'm going to bring them out. Don't want you to shoot any of them. And they're like, I'm, I'm, we won't, we promise. Like, I would prefer it if you, you put your arrows pointing down and such. And, and I was like this, and those few archers that are there put their crossbows down. He's like, okay. And from the woods come a bunch of drow with a bunch of fake drow prisoners. Aaron and his people had arrived. Remember, he'd split off to go try to get some help from his folks. And in the fight in the relative darkness of the woods, again, they are definitely going to be outmatching any of the half-elves and humans that were. They made short work of as many as they could, but under previously Dandy's request, prisoners were taken. Of course, the crossbows start to come back up again, and Mercy's like, lower your weapons. And the general's like, because the general knows the story at this point. Right? They had a day to get here. They've explained it. The drow are not the ones. The drows are helping us, so on and so forth. It's going to be fake drow. But these guys have a bit of a head thing, but they're, mm, I don't know. Like, these are our allies. They've helped us. Many of you are alive at this moment. Because many of the people in them trees are dead. So these guys. Anybody shoots one. Make me very angry, and you don't want that. And you can imagine Mercy and them are snickering. It's like, because you might, there's a little dandy threatening all these armored plate mails. You don't want to piss me off. Don't shoot anybody. There's this little kender at the front, right? But, you know, dandy has that way about her. Like, okay. Aaron comes out and he's got somebody chained up, whatever, and kind of pushing forward. One of the guards takes him. And he introduces himself. Aaron Demarion. I believe these people were trying to harm you and your friend. Aaron goes, Classic, well met. Definitely appreciate your assistance. Were there anybody who got away? And Drow goes, no. Not at all. He sounds like he's 4'3". Uh, that's Dandy. She's a female Kender. She's actually shorter than that. I think she's 3'6". She's 3'6"? She's 3'8". She's under 4 feet tall. It's a little female Kender. The badass. But. More drow come out. A lot more drow. Probably a good 40 or 50 of them. And you can imagine that a lot of the other guards are a little nervous about this. But they come out. And many of them have prisoners. You know, like, here you go, you know, kind of pushing him down in front of him. The prisoners fall, their face hits the dirt, they get scratched. Because, you know, that's how you treat jerks when they're prisoners. 
I mean, based on any movie I've ever seen. <laughs> but, you know, that kind of thing. Cousin Frodo. <laughs> so, it's at this point that the battle is basically over. So it was very, very successful. Um, again, there were, of course, losses. Uh, Artemis manages to heal up Darsh a little bit. Not a whole lot right away, because a lot of her healing has already been used for the day. Uh, but she manages to heal them up an adequate amount. Um, once they are sure that there's no other threat, um, Aaron's warriors are going to leave. Uh, because, of, obviously, the caravan needs to continue on. But before, they do their best to help with whatever the road as much as possible. It takes a lot of them to try to roll this. They basically have to chop the tree to pull it to move it from side to side. Remember, the tree was knocked over because the giant couldn't lift it. They got dragged the giant off the road. It takes all the rest of the night to basically clear the road enough or around the road so they can get around it to still continue. They probably couldn't get all the way. They just had to cut off much so they could get through. Um, at this point, the general and Jonas who's the head wagon dude, send word back to the rest of the caravan, that's a good day behind them, that it's safe for them to come forward. They basically stopped at a town and stayed there while the rest of them moved on without them. Not a day, probably less than a day. It's probably like a few hours because timeline, that wouldn't have worked. The general does take time to meet with Aaron uh, and thanks him specifically for his help. He goes, well, he goes, I have, he goes, I'll be honest, you're my first experience ever dealing with a drow. And if, or more dry out there like yourselves, then definitely the reputation they received is not earned. You can imagine Aaron is, is happy to hear. He's part of a group of drow that want to be of a better Once the caravan catches up, it's going to put the caravans like a good day or so behind at this point, but they manage to finally get everything caught up over the next day. The drow return back to their mountain, except for Aaron, who stays, but then once again goes back into... Using his amulet, goes back to looking like a human warrior again. Goes back to the hunter mode. Um, because he's going to be traveling with the caravan and Mercy and Friends into Star's Reach the rest of the way. And so they do that. Now, you'll remember, Thomas was the jerk from the uh, inn that they've had locked inside the chest of holding this whole time. They bring him out and chain him up with everybody else. He's definitely a dude who's going to be able to name names. So they've got him all hooked up. And... They then continue on towards Star's Reach, which still takes several days to get there. Probably even going a bit slower. Probably lost some horses in those, that fight. Uh, less people to handle things as well. Darsh and friends and Mercy, of course, being very helpful to step in in those regards. Um, but they're able to continue the rest of the journey safely, although it does take several days. When they finally arrive at the city, the city... Very happy to see them, because you can imagine it's not just a few people in this city who know that this is an important caravan. This is the big caravan. Everybody's like, okay, we know these guys have to get here. It's going to be a problem. A lot of businessmen invested in the goods and these things. They need this to show up. And now they're two days late. That's not a good sign. So when they do finally come rolling in, right, and they're hanging out with Darsh and Mercy, people who... Some people are going to recognize, right? And the mayor is going to recognize them. And the merchant lords, because they sent them. They hired them to go take care of the drought problem. Now they're coming back in with the caravan. From their point of view, they succeeded in the job. I mean, it may not have killed all the drought, but definitely they got the caravan through. And that's what Darcy and them were hired to do to begin with by the city. So there's a, a bit of a celebration, not like a big party in the whole city, but there's a bit of a celebration from definitely the merchant lords and the mayor shows up. Although... 
There seems to be one not there. In fact, after a quick uh, discussion with the mayor, it is turned that Merchant Lord Valen hasn't been seen in several days. The other merchant lords and the mayor and our party and the general who was in charge of that uh, all kind of gather together in the merchant lord building and discuss what happened. They give out all the details. They also, of course, are going to notice that they've got a bunch of people in chains, right? People with makeup all over their faces and their arms. It's probably half rubbed off and dirty. And these people probably not been fed a lot the last few days. You know what I'm saying? Like they're keeping them alive. They're not treating him the nicest. They didn't get the fluffiest of pillows when they slept, if you understand what I'm saying. These are turned over to the city. General sits down and explains what they know, along with Darsh and Mercy, who do the primary talking. Explain what's happening. What happened. Turn over the letters from Valen. Explain how it was not the drow, but in fact these fake drow, and Valen, and, the, and Thomas, and um, uh, Willem, Merler, who Dandy slit his throat back at the camp in the last episode. These people were what was causing all this, but thankfully, with the help of the drow, the caravan was able to successfully make it through. That's been several days. So everybody's healed up on the good guy's side by this. Darts is all healed. Probably still a little bit of body aches, but overall, uh, feeling pretty confident that he uh, fist fought a hill giant. And uh, that's a story you can't wait to tell when he gets home. Um, <laughs> so, that. And... For the record, Darsh wanted to bring the big sword. First thing he thought of is, that huge giant sword will look amazing in my hall. There's no way to get it home. It won't fit in the chest of holding. It's way too big to go through, though. <laughs> and he can't carry it. It's a huge sword. So he sadly had to leave the sword. Darsh was very unhappy about that. Because uh, I was like, this, this giant, giant sword. Literally, giant sword would look awesome in his main hall, as as one of his trophies of war. But everything is explained. The mayor, of course, immediately puts out a warrant for the rest of Valen, go to have his home checked and such. But it seems he and his most loyal family, you know, employees, whatever, have gone missing as of a couple days ago, and are no longer in the city. The warrant is to go across the land, and information will be sent to the other kingdoms of his betrayal. And any uh, large reward that was going to go towards killing the drow, well, maybe that'll go towards catching this guy instead. Uh, a little bit of financial perk for bringing him back. Because the other merchant lords, very unhappy about this. A, that they were played for fools, and B, that he tried to cut them out of money. Nothing more insulting than to try to cheat a merchant lord from profit. The true Ferengi that they are not a Star Trek reference. If you don't know what Ferengi is, they're very business and greedy money people. For those of you who don't watch them. So this big conversation's going on. Now both the general and our heroes do not mention that Aaron is a drow. He's just hanging out with them as one of the party. Everybody and they don't know who he is. They just assume you know, was he with them before? I don't know. He's with them. Maybe he joined up. There were a lot of people that have been here for the money. Whatever the case may be, he's a part of this group at this point. But there's no questions. He just looks like an older human dude. And a conversation is said, and this conversation goes on for several hours as all the information is passed out. What happened? What they learned? And what they know of the drow and what the drow's goal are. Just find home. 
And even after all that's been done, even though that it has been clearly proven that the drow were not the villains in this situation, it is still made clear by the mayor that the drow are not wanted. And not even from a, I'm just a jerk, but it's like there's going to be a lot of hatred from the people in these lands who are still going to blame the drow. Still going to think just because the drow, they're a part of that. Um, I don't see a peaceful existence for them in these lands. And I'm not saying we should go hunt them down. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with them. They're good people. But I don't think they're going to find the life they're looking for in the lands of Star's Reach. You can imagine how Aaron is just sitting there hearing this and can't say anything. You don't pop out as a drow in the middle of a conversation. That sure as hell not going to build, uh, uh, you know, trust in the drow if there's been one spying the whole time. So while there's talking about different things and what could be done, and the general's like, yeah, well, sure as hell not going to hunt him down. They helped us out. We're not going to let that happen. And again, Star's Rest, not going to make the biggest kingdom angry. The whole reason they needed this caravan to come through. They did not want to piss off that group, that kingdom over there. So they got to be careful. They're walking on really uneasy ground here as well. Because right now they're like, hey, the drought helped us out. We're good with them. In fact, they did more for us than you did in this situation. It was one of you that caused all this. You can imagine that going on the conversation and the mayor and the and the merchants are, well, now, hold on. We're not saying we hate them or anything. We're just saying, you know, it might be best if they went somewhere else. Old prejudices are... During this conversation, Mercy and Artemis come up to Aaron, and they're like, hey, come with us for a minute. And they leave the room. It's a side room they're, you go into. Step in the side room, and they, some chairs there, and they sit down with Aaron. And, or Ralph, they apologize. They're like, we're, we're sorry that you're having to hear this. For all you've gone through, and then, uh, it didn't seem to make a lot of a difference. He smiles, and he's like, to be honest, I expected nothing. We spent almost, what, 20 years, 15, 20 years, trying to find a place, going from land to land to land. I could have told you this was not going to be the one for us. And Mercy, oh, I'm sorry. Mercy, Artemis, and Fia. They're like, well, we have another idea. We'd like to ask you if you might be interested in something. Aaron's like, okay. What do you have in mind? They said, far to the southeast of here, closer to Serenity than Star's Reach by far, there was a land that we passed through on our way here. Um, it's actually where we met our friend Fia. Fia and her people moved to that land specifically because of how good the soil was for farming. Rivers and lakes in the area teeming with fish, there's forests, there's fruit. It is a very... What I'm looking for. It's a very... Uh, uh, Oh, I can't think of the word. Plentiful. Very plentiful land. Um, that at this point, no one lives in. It's weeks and weeks travel from the border of Star's Reach. It's in a land that no one currently claims. And it's only a short distance from Serenity, a kingdom that would welcome you and your people as an enemy. 
It won't be an easy life. Uh, definitely going to be different from the underground existence that you're used to. But there's already wild farms there. Uh, there's still crops growing wild. There's places to start from. Um, Fia has decided that she's going to return with us to Serenity. She has no desire to live on those lands. And her and her father had a tower there. It's going to need some repairs. We broke it a little bit. But it could be a place for you to start from. And you and your people, this is a land that uh, you could make your own. Talk about it a bit more. They explain what happened when they went through. They heard most of the story already, but you know, it was a big giant robot. We whooped its butt. It was the only one, though, so you should be fine. If you find any little ones, you might want to break those just to be on the safe side. But again, they found all these farmsteads with wild, overgrown fields that had grown well beyond their original border. Uh, you know, old fencing. But there's plenty of trees and woods. Said lakes and things like that. Plenty of fresh water. It would be very easy to step into a land as useful as this. And one of the things I said back when I was talking about that part of the story is when Mercy went through, like, what a great piece of land this is. I'm amazed no one lives here anymore. Then they found out why. Never questioned it after. What a great spot of land unclaimed by anyone and only a few weeks' journey from Serenity. Um, if you and your people were to go there, um, Serenity would help. Send supplies... Definitely, you know, everything from seeds, tools, lumber for building, stone, anything we have you need, help you and your people get started. Um, and then, you know, as you grow there, you've already got a trading partner right there. Um, we would love to have you. Aaron talks about this with a, a little bit with them and finds out more about it. And he likes the sound of it. He's like, yeah, I, you know, we, we mentioned earlier on that, you know, they tried farming a little bit, but the soil up near the caves they were living in currently just wouldn't do for any of that. They're not people that are used to farming. Drow farm, surprisingly, let me clear that up. There is farming in the Underdark. Uh, many different creatures farm in the Underdark. Just the crops and such are very different. A lot of mushroom-based things. Um, edible molds and such. Uh but the concept of farming is not foreign to them. Farming things that need sunlight might be, probably, but even things underground need water. So the concept of farming is something, I'm sure there's people in his group that have family or have worked in farming somewhat that they could get a start. Um, and with Serenity's help, they could probably build a pretty good life there. Um, Aaron accepts, especially he is like, yeah, and you can have, me and Midas house. I mean, we're, I'm not going back there. I'm I'm going to Serenity. There's a wizard's tower there. Um, you know, I was still training. There's more I can learn there. And uh, Serenity definitely, I've got friends there as well now. I'm I'm interested in making that my home. So I guess, she goes, I have no claim to the land, nor do I wish to have it. It's free for you and your people. So Aaron accepts. And so they go back out and sit down at the table and, and have a conversation. And, and, and they bring this up. And remember, the general knows about Aaron. But Mercy's like, here's what we think can happen. And he explains the land far to the south, well beyond your border. They can move there. Now, they're going to need supplies to get there. And they're going to need free passage through your land to get there. And before the mayor can say anything, the general goes, I'm sure they'll make that happen. Again, with all the money that they uh, had offered up to... Uh, uh, deal with their drow problem. I'm sure some of those funds 
could then be funneled to do the exact same thing, but in a much more humane way. And the mayor's like, I agree 100%. Because again, does not want to make this guy, the general, angry, right? I agree 100%. Plus, from a hero point of view, think of him, right? I am the mayor. I dealt with the drow problem. I allowed them to leave. We'll never see them again. But I took care of it. And our caravans are safe. Like, everybody kind of a win there. Except the drow I'm still going to be leaving in a situation where everybody's still going to kind of blame them that lives there. That's just how that works. So, in fact, that's what ends up happening. Um, the general ins insists that stars reach assist. The mayor agrees completely. Uh, large amount of supplies, wagons, even horses, food, and some things to help them get started um, are donated um, by Star's Reach. And uh, as I've mentioned, Mercy and them, when they travel with a chest of holding, always have a small fortune with them. She goes as well and buys even more. So by the time Aaron and... Mercy and Darshan them show up at the mountains with these wagons and such, and a bunch of guards of soldiers from uh, uh, the general's group who have come to help escort them at least to the edge of uh, Star's Reach lands. Right? Make sure they get through there okay. Drow pack up their stuff. This is not obviously a quick process, right? They got to gather up the things. They've been living in this cave now for almost year, year and a half, pick up stuff, takes a few days at least, gather up what they can. Plus, it's wagons full of food. So these guys are getting to eat real food. Remember, when Mercy and them were yanking barrels of pickled fish out of the chest of holding, these guys were ecstatic. So this is even more of that, right? But there's also seeds and tools, blankets, right? Um, things they can use to build, make tents, makeshift homes until they can build homes, things of that nature. Um, but they go back and they gather up Aaron's people and along with Mercy and their escort uh, head south uh, towards what will hopefully be their new and long-term home. So as we're getting to the end of that, because I mean, that's the end of that, right? I've got some reading to finish this off and then a little snippet to go over with you uh, before we end for the day. Let me run a few minutes over. Traveling from the lands of Star's Reach to the south was a hard journey. Thanks to the supplies provided by the city and even more purchased by Mercy, the travelers were in good spirits. With a good supply of food, there already was a huge improvement in the health of the entire drow community. While they traveled, Mercy and Aaron worked out what would need to be done in the future. He was going to move into Fia's old tower himself and use it as a base of operations, kind of expand his people and help them get set up, building basically one farm at a time, getting that farm up and running with whoever was going to live there, and then as a whole move and build the next one. So that first one's up and running, making food to help then feed everybody as they're building the farms. So they were kind of, the concept was to kind of take the tower and go kind of in a spiral in the farms and build it that way. So again, by the time they get to the third or fourth or fifth and sixth, the first ones are starting to produce. Um, also talk about getting um, not just seeds, but things like cows, chickens. Serenity is going to uh, help supply with uh, animal stock that they can then breed from to start having that type of a supply as well. Uh, let's see. As I said, Fia was very ha happy to offer up the land as she decided to return with her new friends to Serenity. Seeds, lumber, tools, and all sorts of supplies would be sent as well from Serenity as soon as Mercy re returned home. 
The land was just as they, well, when they arrived there, the land uh, was just as they had left it. The tower would need some repairs, but the smithy at its base was still in surprisingly good shape. The large golem still lay on the ground where it had fallen. Once deconstructed, much of its metal could be repurposed into tools, nails, and other useful things. The companions, though, decided they would not stay long, only a couple of days before heading to Serenity. They were eager to get home, and also eager to get more help sent back to the drow as quickly as possible. Before they left, Aaron took Dandy aside to speak in private. Dandy always felt uncomfortable alone around him. Her guilt over the way she had behaved at the beginning of this whole thing shamed her greatly. For his part, Aaron seemed to hold nothing against her, treating her and her friends as longtime allies. Standing under a tree on that nice warm day, Dandy could see her friends packing their horses a short distance away. The sounds of hammering and repairs came from the nearby tower and the body of the golem that lay nearby. Miss Dandelion, said Aaron, I have a gift for you to thank you for helping my people. Dandy went red in embarrassment. Ah, I didn't do anything more than my friends did. You don't have to give me anything. Aaron smiled. Perhaps, but I can speak for myself when I say that overcoming one's prejudices is no easy task. From his pocket, he pulled a piece of jewelry. It had a long, dainty platinum chain, and at its end, it held a spider-shaped locket encrusted with Wow, it's very pretty, said Dandy. She'd never seen anything like it. Yes, said Aaron, and Dandy could see a hint of anger on his face as he looked at it. It belonged to my lord's wife and was very cherished by it. It may seem petty, but when we fled the Underdark, I did my best to take as many of her valuables as I could, not even the tiniest way of getting back at her betrayal of my lord. He gently placed it into Dandy's hands. Open it, he whispered. Smiling, Dandy opened the beautiful locket. On the left was a picture of a beautiful female drow, expertly made, almost as good as a photograph, very well made, maybe even magical. She was beautiful, long white hair, you could see the jewels in the picture, yet her face didn't really show a lot of emotion, had a bit of a coldness to it. And he was like, hmm. That was on the left. And then when she looked on the right, Dandy's heart stopped, and her hands began to shake. Him was all she could say. Toradel, said Aaron. My lord's brother-in-law, and after their betrayal, he became the brother-in-law of Nilat Firemoon, and uncle to his child. Dandy looked into Aaron's eyes. On his face she saw the anger and the hurt and the sadness that she knew was on her own face as well, as they both stood there fighting back their tears. So inside this locket is the picture of the drow she's been searching for. 20. Dandy reached out and took Aaron's hand. As she felt the tears slowly creeping down her cheeks, she looked him in the eyes and said, I have learned not to blame the many for the acts of one, but this one 
For him, there can be no forgiving. Her face got a very serious look, and she looked deep into his eyes. I swear to you, no matter what it takes, I'm going to find him. I'm going to kill him. Aaron nodded in agreement. And when that day comes, if you need me in any way, I have but to call. The two embraced for a moment. Andy would have never guessed that the one person in the world who might truly understand how she felt might end up being a drow. This world continued to be a source of surprises. Returning to her friends, they took to their mounts. Waving goodbye to their new friends, they began the final leg of their journey home. To their families, their friends, to the future. So, Dandy came there, the whole thing, because she hated a particular drow. Actually, all drow in particular, but specifically the one. Hoping he would be there, and he wasn't. But Aaron knows who he was. And for the first time, Dandy has a name to go with the image that haunts her. And an actual picture now, which can be handy. So the drow all those years ago who killed Ender Village was is now Nilat Firemoon's brother-in-law. And didn't we discuss in an earlier episode that the person trying to mess with Seraph's path was the son Nilat Firemoon. Everything comes full circle. So, that's the end of that storyline, specifically. Um, and when we move into next week's episode, some time will have passed. Not a ton, but a little small amount of time will have passed. But before we do, there is two little snippets that I'd like to get. One of them is just straight up reading, and the other one is just some information to, well, almost reading as well, of things that are going to happen very, very soon where we are right now. Um, eh, they're important. I'd like to read them to you today. So I'm going to step back to the second piece of a little snippet that happened earlier in this adventure. Some of you hopefully will remember. Tevin was almost done making dinner. The stew smelled wonderful, and its aroma filled the entire cabin. He filled two bowls and placed them on the table next to the bottle of wine that Kat had brought with her. She'd stepped outside for a few moments to get some air. Kevin smiled at the thought of her. Her visits were far too rare for his liking. Walking over to, uh, so he walked over to a nearby sh uh, shelf. He picked up two mugs for their drinks. As he walked back to the table, he suddenly stopped. He'd heard the sound of a man's voice outside. Placing the cups down, he walked to the door, concerned that maybe Draven had arrived for a visit. While always happy to see his dearest friend, Cat had made it quite clear she'd rather not bump into him while she was here. He opened the door and stepped outside, not making a sound. For a couple reasons. One, he's a tribal. He 
They're raised to move silently and quietly, and he's very good at it. Then he was trained by Draven to survive in Draven's homeworld. There's a lot of stuff going on there. He can move very quietly when he needs to. The two people outside turned to look at him. Both of them trained to hear sounds even when there were none. Kat was speaking to a man, dressed all in purple and black. He wore a large floppy hat, the purple feather, and a rapier strapped to his belt. Kat looked a little upset, but the man looked at Tevin with a huge smile. Stepping forward, he took his hat in hand and made a large bow to Tevin. Greetings, Tevin Lightbringer. My name is Ventolio, and it is a great pleasure to finally meet you. I've heard many wonderful things about you. The man moved with a smoothness and grace, his confidence clear. Tevin knew this kind of man all too well. This man was dangerous. Tevin accepted the man's outstretched hands and greeting, never breaking eye contact. After years of traveling with Draven and surviving on his friend's homeworld, Tevin was not a typical cleric of healing. When needed, Tevin could be a very dangerous man himself. I can't say I've been given the same honor, sir. Ventolio's smile grew larger. The two men understood each other very well. Quite understandable, said Ventolio, stepping back. I'm quite the private person. Ventolio turned and walked back towards the forest, stopping next to Cat for only a moment. I shall wait for you in the trees. As he was about to enter the forest, the rogue stopped and turned again, looking at Tevin for a moment longer. Farewell, Brother Lightbrook. I'm sure we'll meet again. Then, walking into the trees, he seemed to disappear almost completely. Cat walked past Tevin and into the cottage. With a quick glance back at the trees, he followed her inside. She was already gathering her things. You're leaving, he said quite flat. With a sad smile, she said, Yes, my dear, I must. Seems the queen and her friends are on their way home and she'll arrive in a couple of days, and there are things I'll need to see to. Tevin watched her packing for another moment before speaking. Now, that doesn't really seem like the kind of news that would matter to someone in a, of low rank in your organization. It was the nicest word he could think of to call a bunch of thieves. Cat turned and looked at him, raising an eyebrow. He could see he'd struck a nerve. But even when she might look upset, her smile still looked playful. She stepped forward and took his hands. Now, darling... Both agreed not to ever discuss guild business. It is for your protection as much as it is mine. I enjoy our time together very much. Wait, see it come. She leaned in and kissed him passionately, and as always, he immediately felt lightheaded at her touch. Finally separating, she again looked him deep in the eyes. But you're correct. The news would not matter to someone unimportant. That the last and only time ever discussed the guild with. Tevin nodded as she turned to grab the last of her things. Fret not, my dear, she said lightheartedly. I shall return as soon as events allow, and I suggest you get some rest. We'll have a lot of time to make up for. 
Another kiss, and then she was gone out the door. A few steps, and she too was lost into the forest, almost like she disappeared. Staring after her, her words played over in his head. And that was the last and only time I will discuss the guild with you. He knew Cat was skilled. He was quick, dexterous, and highly trained. But in her eyes, as she'd spoken, he'd seen for the very first time how dangerous she was as well. Perhaps even more so than Antolio. His thoughts were heavy as he closed the door to his home and made his way back to the meal he would end up eating. There's that part. Oh, I missed Ashley Post. Excellent literary gardening. Oh, thank you! <laughs> you know I love to sprinkle seeds in the story. Very often I like to hide little details in the story that don't mean anything right now, but will mean everything in the future. I can't tell you how many of those I just put in that last story. Not that there, but the whole adventure we just did. Man, I, I sprinkled heavy in that one. Looking forward to that payoff. What can I mean? Maybe we'll find out one day. So after that, there's only a couple more little uh, house cleaning things to handle. After Mercy and them do return home, very quickly they go ahead and make the arrangements to send back as many goods as they could on the first run. Uh, she probably could have sent a lot more, but she's trying to get it back there quickly. And she's doing that for two reasons. They've never really been that far north, even though it's only several weeks' travel. That's several weeks past the forest. So... They have a road that leads to the middle of the forest almost, because that's where the realm gate is. But now, already they're having to talk, well, hell, now we have to put a road on the other side of the gate, because we're going to need a road. We're going to start sending goods up there, wagons of supplies, and potentially open up a down the road they might want to be a village that trained, maybe even become part of Serenity. We're going to need a way to get there and back. So I'm, immediately she starts meeting with people and talking about what's going on and so on and so forth. They send up as many goods as they could. They, she taps Flynn to lead that caravan going north. Um, of all of the knights, Flynn is the only one who's not technically a lord of a given area. I've talked about this before. Um, the knights have specific areas of serenity that they kind of oversee. And for each one, there's kind of a mixture. Like Quan, Seamus, and there's an area in the middle they both help with, that kind of thing. Flynn was originally an apprentice, so by the time he became a Knight of Serenity, those lands were already kind of divvied up. And not in a you're a lord, you make profit off of it. It's more of a that's your responsibility. And so Flynn has always, uh, along with very much uh, Ulrich, has taken on the responsibility of overseeing the city itself. Um, now, as king, and as they've grown, and they have more people, and they have the uh, young lady, who the half-elf young lady that's going to be helping out um, uh, Mercy's new sidekick, who we'll see more in the next, uh, moving forward in the adventures. There's more people to take care of Serenity. Uh, this was the perfect thing for Mercy to tap Flynn for. You're going to be my in-between, right? I can't keep traveling up there. They're going to need our help quite heavily for the next while, potentially for several years. So you're going to be the ambassador between Serenity and whatever they decide to call themselves. And I have a name, but that's for later. Um, 
they're going to go up there and, and you're going to be that in between. You're going to see what they need. Come back. We're going to make those arrangements. And then down the road, as they become self-sufficient and trade and all those things come, you're going to be the one overseeing those relations. This is not just a bandit. This is a long-term job I'm giving you. So you're going to be setting them up for success, but in the same way, helping Serenity. Because if they, whether they grow up to be their own kingdom or they become part of Serenity, whatever that case is, they're an ally. And that's a type of ally you're not going to come across every day. Um, not only just in the skills and abilities they bring just as a race, but the knowledge Aaron has of potentially some of their enemies at this point, overwhelmingly important. So this also makes it much easier for me to open up Drow as playable characters in this area as well, which I'm excited about. Um, that's now Flynn's primary role. He's been tapped for that. He's honored to be asked. Takes the job very, very seriously. Happy to do it. Um, also, during this time period, over this, ne this next few weeks to a month after they get back, uh, Draven pays a visit to Tevin, right? They're happy that, you know, when, hasn't seen Artemis now in months she hasn't seen Seraph. Seraph's home, of course, from his trip to the Kingdom of Firemoon. But they're hanging out and spending time together. He wants to go check on Tevin, because he did not leave Serenity while Artemis was gone. Because he hasn't got to visit Tevin in months. So he goes up to visit Tevin. And it's one of those things where, you know, you can imagine him coming into the house and sitting. Because he used to be his house, too. He's always welcome. He comes and sits down and talk about how's it going. And, uh, and, and Draven would make a point of over-embellishing what I'm about to do. Draven would be there and go like this. I see. Draven does not have to make that noise. Draven can sense the smell is insane. <laughs> and he says, I see you've had a visitor again. Tevin, of course, gets a little red at that. Draven knows about her. Tevin would have told him. Tevin's not going to hide that from him. But if she's uncomfortable, he's going to try to make arrangements that the two don't show up at the same time. Yeah, out of respect. You know, whatever the reason is, she doesn't want to be around Draven a whole lot. That's fine. That's okay. And, you know, Tevin apologizes. Like, I'm sorry. I'm dreaming. You do not need to apologize. And you're a grown man, and I respect and trust anything you're doing. But be careful. You mean a lot to me as well, and I would hate to see your heart get. Kevin, embarrassing. I, I, I know. You know, can kind of picture that, right? Draven's still way older than he is. You know, and they're, they're best friends, but Draven's still all bit of a father figure to him as well, right? I know. He's like, I'm just saying, you know, be careful. Don't rush into things. But if you're happy, that's all that matters. Draven's fine with it, you know? So that takes some weight off of his shoulders because, you know, you can imagine him be like, you know, what if Draven was like mad about it and she knew and that's why, blah, blah, blah. But that's not the case. Like, I'm fine with it. You're good. And, you know, they talk about it, and he's like, she's uncomfortable being here when you're here. He's like, that's fine, then. I will do my best. Should I arrive and she's here? Because the kid, you're not. He can be a quarter mile away. He'll know she's here. He'll be like, I won't interrupt. You know? Devin's like, I really appreciate it. So that kind of groundwork is laid. Draven knows about her. He's always known about her ever from the beginning. There's no reason Tevin would have kept that hidden. But talking about the, hey, she's uncomfortable with potentially running into here, Draven goes, I'll make sure that doesn't. You know, which is nice. He's a friend and he wants Tevin to be happy. Tevin doesn't have a people anymore. Overall, you know, his, his people in the tribe he's from are what thousands of miles to the east. 
right? And he's decided not to return to them. He's going to stay here uh, and live amongst serenity. But he still lives out in the woods because that's the kind of lifestyle he likes. He loves nature. Lifestyle he wants. So that happens. But one particular event happens that um, does cause a little bit of problem in a relationship with many. Because one day, not long after Mercy's returned home and Artemis and Dandy and I've come to visit. Draven is with them as well. The kids aren't there. The kids are off doing school or training or whatever they do. But she's sitting there with Artemis and Draven, Michael, Dandy. Probably a Ulrich's going to be there, a couple of the knights. Obviously not Flynn. He's already gone at this point. But Seamus and Quan are there. And they're just talking about, you know, catching up on what other things have happened since they were gone. Mercy's very unhappy about one thing, and that is the overwhelming growth of activity from the Thieves' Guild in Serenity. While she was gone, it seemed that their activity increased quite a bit, and not only that, has it sometimes become a bit more brazen, quite as behind the scenes as it used to be. And on top of that, he's even more concerned at a piece of information that she received from the Kingdom of Firemoon. Remember back when the kids were there, there was talk of a thieves' guild war going on. And uh, so that's why Dina got kidnapped, because some group was trying to get out of there and make some money on the way. That war has been ended for all intents and purposes. And the old thieves' guild is gone. Both Rafe and Mercy are alarmed when they learn that the thieves' guild of Firemoon claims allegiance to the Black Rose. That's a huge step. These are kingdoms hundreds, if not a thousand miles apart. The way to decently travel between them is through. Realm Gate. And this is a thieves' guild, a thief lord who's gained so much power, they were able to come in and take over a thieves' guild of another incredibly powerful. And that does not weigh well on either leader's minds. One act in particular has Mercy irritated on this day. Turns out that. Just a short while ago, there was an assassination of one of the citizens of Serenity. It was actually a brewer who owned a small brewing company in Serenity. He was found one morning clearly assassinated. No point was it meant to be hidden. It wasn't just a robbery. Nothing was taken. Uh, you could almost say that he was left on display inside his own home. Looking into it, of course, the knights, Seamus, Ulrich, whatever, you know, they were looking into that. Um, they learned of different rumors uh, that this brewer may have been involved in unsavory acts or dealings, not the Thieves' Guild specifically. Let's say more unsavory than that. 
And that may have or may not have been the cause of his death. Mercy again, at this moment, she's sitting in there hearing this, and she's, you know, Mercy is, like Darsh, one who easily loses her temper at times. She's very angry. She's upset about it. Yelling a bit. She's irate. Doesn't matter if that was the situation that should have been brought to them. Should have been investigated. There should have been a trial or whatever, the whole case. The big thing she's worried about, she does not want to see vigilante justice. She doesn't need that type of thing. She does not need the Thieves Guild to start showing up as the person taking care of people, you know, in the worst kind of ways. That can only lead to trouble for everybody. So she's very upset at this, because again, it's very, very brazen. Probably one of the most brazen things since the time those three were left crucified on the road to Serenity Keep. That was long ago, and now... That stretch of road is completely built around. Buildings and city has expanded beyond it. But at that time, three living men were not the nicest of people. were left burning on crosses. That was the day that the she found the black note from the Black Rose on her bed. It said, not in my city. Well, it said, on a silver tray, Black Rose sitting on it. Not in my city. The only direct communication she'd ever had, other than a conversation that she'd had once with a gentleman who claimed to be a thorn of the rose, one of her high lieutenants, uh, a man wearing a rapier, dressed in purple and black, went by the name Ventolio. Said about these situations and what's going on, Sitting there with her friends, she decides to say something she's refrained from up until this point. And she says to Draven, My friend, I hate to ask this of you. I don't wish to put you in an odd situation or anything. If I needed it, do you think you could find out who she is? you think you could track down? Because if there's anybody who could do it, it'd be Draven. Right? Again, it's one of those things. with Not even from just contacts, which Draven has a pretty healthy group of contacts, right? At this point, Mercy probably has just as good with Serenity in the Kingdoms. Different contacts, but still, nonetheless. It could be, you know, do you think if we needed you to, you could find out who she is? And everybody's just kind of looking at Draven, like, you know, what are you going to say? Yes, no? Not a big deal. And Draven kind of sits there for a moment, a little bit longer than he probably should have. And his eyes narrow a bit, and he goes, I already know who she is. One of those pin drop moments. So Mercy's like, you what? Echo by Artemis is like, you what? Gandy's, huh? Like, you know, you picture all that. Raven goes, I've known for a very long time. Years, in fact. And Mercy's like, and you've never told us. And Artemis is like, you've never even told me. And he's like, no, nor will I. Her and I have a agreement made a very long time ago. I stay out of her guild's business. Do not tell anyone who she is. Anyone. In return, she does two things for me. One, 
guild business will never affect the children, you all, or take place on temple grounds. Guild business will never take place at all. You all are safe and protected. There'll be no kidnapping of a princess. You know what I mean? That's not, not going to happen in this city. And as much as me may want to stop it, she can guarantee it. And the second thing is, it's helping me find it. Her resources are almost And her connection, her web, stretches further than likely any other person alive, vastly beyond mine and yours combined. If there's anyone on this planet who can find that hatted bastard, it's going to be the rule. She does deliver him to There he is, or in person. I You can imagine that both Mercy, Artemis, and Dandy a little bit, are pissed at this. Now, there's a little bit of talking back and forth. He's like, this is too important. No, I didn't mention it because I didn't want this conversation to happen. I didn't want to have to tell you, no, I'm not going to. Because I'm not. This is too important. He's out there. He's after my son. Too much nothing in the world I'm willing, not willing to do to keep that from happening. Mercy and Artemis and Danny give each other little side looks. Of course, they know a little bit more about that than he does. They haven't told him what they They're kind of snagged in that catch-22 there. They're kind of snagged like, we want to give you hell for not telling us, but in our minds right now, all we can think of are the things we know that we're not telling you. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard to call someone out on that when you're sitting there with the exact same thing going on. They can't say he's not really a, he's not really a problem without telling the whole story, right? So they are trapped. And so they have to let that go. But the only other thing that he mentions about the Rose is this. I'll tell you who she is. I won't tell you where to find her. I've met with her once. Never have to do it again. Tell you one thing. There are very, very few people that I've met on this entire planet give me cause of brother was one. Hatted prick is another. Rose. I don't know if I've ever met someone who that much of whatever. The danger there far beyond anything. I'm not saying let the rose go. This is your kingdom. Of course, you've got to do what you can, but be wary. So that's where we're going to end today. That little tidbit slid out there. Raven's known for years, he said. Means even before the man in the hat attacked with his legion of undead and serenity. But waiting for a while, I've been poking that bear, which is the, the black rose, making sure everybody remembers that she's out there. 
but I can promise that she is going to become a much more important character as we move along. Now, sometime, as I said, is going to pass after this, before the next section of the story begins, uh, two weeks from now, on Thursday, of course, here on YouTube at 8 p.m. Eastern, we will be uh, entering into what is truly the next phase of merge. <laughs> Everything I've written for the last 10 years has been literally to get to next week's episode. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to finally throw some of that in. Like, I'm as excited as I was as when the man in the hat had a conversation. Right? Um, I'll also be introducing a character that I've been sitting on now, honestly, for only a few weeks or a month or two, that I'm ecstatic to bring into the story. So... Two weeks from now, on Thursday, we will be having Merged Worlds episode 71 in the official chapter of the children. In uh, hopefully a most boisterous fashion, as you'll find it interesting. I'd like to get going with a bet. I do appreciate all of you who came by and listened to my story today, especially with it here in America anyways, it being a holiday, uh, skipping out on your family to hear me. <laughs> uh, but whether you listen to this today, tomorrow, 10 years down the road, it would be awesome. Click like on this stream. Uh, it means so much and helps the channel out more than you'll ever know. If you're new here listening for the first time, it'd be awesome if you'd subscribe as well. It would be awesome to see you more often. Uh, if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify as well, it would be awesome if you'd give us a like or a thumbs up or a five stars or all the stars, how many stars it is, I don't even know. <laughs> it would be great if you'd give us a review as well. If you have a couple minutes and wouldn't mind leaving your thoughts on there, um, it means a huge amount in how well a podcast can be uh, shown in, to other people, the more ratings and the more feedback it gets and or reviews, the more uh, Spotify and iTunes will put it in front of other people's eyes. And I just want to share my story. You have a couple minutes and you have iTunes or Spotify, it'd be great if you gave it a follow over there. Have a minute to type out your thoughts. I'd love to hear your review. Um, but that's going to do us for today. Next Thursday, we will be uh, doing, of course, Behind the Dice. Um, I'm bouncing between topics on that yet. I haven't decided exactly which one I want to cover. Um, but I think it may be a straight-up, here's how 2nd edition works. Um, because a lot of my story, a lot of Merged Worlds, and a lot of the things you're going to see come from me are really based on a 2nd edition Dungeon Dragons concept. Um, so, for those of you who might be interested in how that works, uh, the differences between 2nd and 5th edition, uh, I think that's what I'm going to cover next week, touching upon that and just kind of showing how skills, abilities... Races, classes, things like that. I should be able to give an overview of second edition in one episode. So hopefully you'll come by and see that. But even if you can't, two weeks from now, big, super awesome, cool beginning of the next story. Hope you'll come by and listen. Okay? I'm going to call that a day. Thank you very much for coming by. As always, a special thank you to all my moderators, especially on a day of thanks. Uh, I could not do any of this. So the hard work and time they put into it. And... Couldn't ever get to tell my story if you guys didn't listen. So thank you very much to you as well. 
appreciate you more than you. All right. You all have yourselves a wonderful week, a wonderful holiday. If you're having one, wonderful Thursday or Friday. If you're not, see you again. Thank you for visiting me.